friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson, and this is James... Hey, James, you okay? No. What's wrong? What's wrong? Yeah. We're trapped here in a tomb, away from our families. I haven't seen my kids in... I don't even know how long. But but we, we got to meet Roy Thomas and Joe yeah. Bob Briggs. Yeah... Okay, so I what can I do to cheer you up? Um, would would, would you uh would you like to uh would you like to review some comics? No, there's gonna be stupid Marvel horror comics again. But we we've got we've got some new characters showing up. We we we've got Blade. Blade. Yeah, the the vampire hunter. You know, the cool guy from the movies, Wesley Snipes. Yeah. Um, and uh and and we've got uh we we've got some. Some more of that Frankenstein book that you like? I do like Frankenstein. Is it is it Mike Plug? Um, it is in fact Mike Plug. He's good. He's very good. And and then get this, we've got an appearance by Buck Cohen. Let's do this thing. All right. Okay. So, um, as you just heard from uh, James here, we've got three issues coming up: Tomb of Dracula number ten, Monster of Frankenstein number four. Werewolf by Night number seven. We're going to take a quick break and get back to these before James changes his mind. Yeah! What? What? Wait, huh? Trouble is here. He's street smart and steel hard. He's a healer, a fixer. My name's T, baby. Wears $600 suits, drives a $10,000 car, and he carries two guns. One to stop trouble and one to make trouble. He was born in the ghetto and raised in the streets. He's been a man since he was a kid, and trouble is this man's name. If you got trouble, call T and leave a message. Service is prompt, efficient, and deadly. Trouble man, you jive him, he'll wash you away. Trouble man. Rated R. Restricted. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson, and we're going to start our coverage today of July 1973 with Tomb of Dracula number 10. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Penciler is Gene Colan. Inker is Jake Abel. Colorist is Glynis Ween. Letterer is Denise Vladimir. Editor is Roy Thomas. Cover artist is Gil Kane, and the story is called My Name is Blade. On the docks, a young couple plan to stow away on a boat so they can elope to America when they are set upon by a trio of vampires. All seems lost for the young lovers when suddenly the undead trio are set upon by Blade, the Vampire Hunter. With his sharpened wooden knives, Blade makes short work of the bloodsuckers, though he is then lectured on his harsh methods by Harker, who then turns around and invites Blade to join his team. Blade declines. 
We then cut to a luxury yacht on which the idle rich party with a very noble guest, Count Dracula. Dracula charms the gullible guest, assuring the them that his vampirism is in fact a harmless blood condition, but later in the evening he reveals his true colors, declaring to the rich and powerful that they must serve him or perish. Before they can make that fateful choice, however, one of the party goers produces a crucifix and the others dogpile on the momentarily incapacitated vampire. Meanwhile, a scuba-equipped blade sneaks aboard the ship. Blade's arrival is fortunate for the partygoers, as the Lord of Vampires has turned the tide against them. But even the vampire hunter seems ready to fall prey to the Count before the sudden distraction of an entranced party girl that Draca fed on earlier, coming to claim her love. Realizing his advantage is lost, Dracula transforms to his winged form to flee the ship, informing the guests that he has arranged explosives around the ship. Blade, the guest, and the abandoned graves jump overboard just in time as the yacht explodes. So this is something of a change of pace for uh, really Tomb of Dracula. Yeah, it really is. I, I wasn't expecting... For one thing, I wasn't expecting Blade this quickly. Right. Now, we'd been getting hints at another vampire hunter for several issues now. So we, yes. we, we kind of thought that we were building toward it, but... He comes out of nowhere and doesn't quite match with the expectations that were set in the previous issues. Right. We, we, we'd gotten implications of a secret ally, but then on the previous issue, we kind of got a swerve to, oh, it's a member of Parliament. Right. But now we meet Blade. Right. So I'm not sure if that the, the secret ally they're referring to is Blade or that member of Parliament. However, I'm inclined to believe the latter. Right, right, because Harker really doesn't seem to approve of Blade's methods. No, no, he is quite brutal with his vampire prey. Yeah, um, and so so, what do we make of uh, this first appearance of Blade? He, To someone who has only ever seen the character as played by Wesley Snipes, I don't know that this character would be entirely familiar. I think he's one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Hey, baby, I'm talking about Blade. Um, yeah, he, he's definitely, he's interesting. He's wearing a lot less black leather than I expected. Sure, and that's a difference in the aesthetic. We're, we're in the 70s, and so, like, the the rules and effects of sartorial display, as it were, are, are quite different. Yeah. Um, although, I'm kind of digging the, the green jacket he's got. I'm, I'm not sure about the yellow shades slash goggles things he's wearing. They're very booster gold. Yeah, those I don't quite get, but but the jacket I like. The jacket, especially with the bandolier of wooden knives. Yeah, I like it. It's it's good stuff. It's it's a heroic outfit without being a superhero outfit, if that makes sense. Yeah, and he, he, he's doing the bandolier years before, I think, like Rambo would do it. Right, right. Which he kind of looks like, you know... I am outfitted for hunting vampires and kicking ass. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get this. I mean, it's a little early for, for Rambo, but, like, especially when he does the, like, the scuba dive to get to the ship. Like, it's a very James Bond sequence. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because I don't think we've gotten the same thing from, say, Frank Drake. Right. We, we, we wouldn't have a very cool... Um, scuba diving action secret sort of thing he very much is the 
the superhero action hero vampire hunter. Right. Like, he is far more than Frank. He is sort of the male equivalent to Rachel. Yes. Which, I don't know, I kind of like him as a potential love connection for Rachel as opposed to Frank. I can see that. Yeah, I think they're much more in sync, but you know. Uh, I like... It's definitely clear why he was such a natural translation to the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's basically a 80s action hero in the 70s as a vampire hunter. Right. He is very much James Bond, like you were saying. Yeah, before... James Bond, um, a little bit of the black exploitation heroes like Shaft. Yeah. Um, especially in the dialogue. Yeah. Um, and, like, how far out from the introduction of Luke Cage are we right now? Luke Cage was coming out around the, ti- around the time we covered Amazing Spider-Man 100. Okay. So around our first episode. So we're about one or two years out from Luke Cage. Because, I mean, that's another very clear connection I think we can make in terms of the depiction of the character. Hold on. Let me check. This is July 1973. So we're about a year out. Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, June 1972. So a year and one month. Yeah. So so I, I, I don't know that we get this character in this Dracula comic without the success of Hero for Hire. Was it a successful title, though? Um, that's a good question. Um, without the existence of Hero for Hire, I guess. Yeah. I, I think Hero for Hire really wasn't popular until... Um, they combined it and Iron Fist, and then they got Claremont and Byrne on it. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. But I'm really digging Blade here. Yeah. Um, it, it changes the dynamic of the comic a little bit. We know, like, this is a character who's not on the run. Who's not, like, he is going to confront the vampires head on rather than being chased by them. Yes. Which kind of seems what's been happening with Rachel and Frank. Like, Oh, we have to fight. We have to fight Dracula now. Meanwhile, Blade. There's a scene on here where he's, you know, he's getting off that scuba suit, and but when I'm ready, but when I'm ready, man, scratch one big daddy vampire. Yeah, I'm like, okay, he's not playing around. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's even in terms of the way they uh, he approaches a, a fight scene. Like we 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 talked about this last time where. Parker and Drake and uh, Rachel Van Helsing, they have all of these cool tricks and gimmicks and things that they then don't use in the fight. Yes. Whereas Blade, like, from panel one, I've got a wooden knife, and it's going to go into that vampire. Yeah, not even a wooden stake. I have a wooden knife. You get a, you get the idea this thing is perfectly balanced. It's sharpened to a very fine tip. Yeah. It is specially designed for killing bloodsuckers. Right. And I can see why later on in comics and in movies, um, they might they would they would switch him to silver tipped weapons. Yes. Um, for one thing, because they look more intimidating and impressive. But also, yes, they do. also there is a point where he will be fighting things other than vampires, and so it's useful to have a weapon that can hurt something other than the undead, like IRS agents. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> uh, but for now, um, uh, the the wooden weapons both make a lot of sense and give him a very distinctive look. I think what I meant to say is, Mr. Snipes, we love you. We believe you're completely innocent. Please feel free to come on our show. Good save. Good save. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But we do have yet another issue where uh, Rachel and Frank are basically absent. Yeah. Uh, we had that with the previous issue on the kind of the fishing village. Right. That's not quite Liverpool. Right. But here they are. I mean, we get Harker. Right. We get a reference to Harker. Right. We're not given really given an update on what Rachel and Frank are up to and Raj. Right. They are still, I guess, with Harker and, and probably investigating whatever leads they had on their previous encounter. Right. But I don't really miss them because Blade is just so cool. Right. I, I guess what I'm hoping is that these loose strands will eventually be brought together. Yes. Because I want Blade interacting with those other characters that I've grown to like. Yes. And they're probably not going to go long for a while, because that's how these things work. Yes. But but it's something I want to see. Uh, but yeah, this very much... I mean, Dracula is very much the focus of the comic, but the primary purpose is to let us get to know Blade as a new protagonist. Or a new heroic character, I guess. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. How would you like them to bring Blade into the MCU? I can see it. Um, I, they have the rights. They do. I've said for a while that they should do another set of TV ser- like miniseries things like they did for Netflix, but do supernatural characters. Okay. So you could do Blade, you could do Ghost Rider, which they're already doing. They're doing on Hulu, yeah. Yep. Um, you could bring Moon Knight into that. Um, like, you could do, like, four or five mystic and supernatural and horror-based heroes, and that would give you something similar in structure to the Netflix shows, but very different in tone and style. Yeah. Um, lovely listeners, in case you have not heard, um, it was recently announced that with the controlling stake that Disney has now has in Hulu, Monopolies um, are bad children, uh, that they are launching a... Uh, Ghost Rider series featuring the Robbie Reyes, yeah, uh, um, featuring the same act, the same actor who played the character on Agents of Shield. So we're guessing it's in continuity with that. Yes, but probably not the MCU films, right? Well, because there's a still a weird sort of split between Marvel Television and Marvel Films. Yes, basically, Kevin Feige says no. Well, because Marvel Television is still under the purview of Perlmutter. Who is a dick. So, um, which is why you're not going to hear much about, say, the Runaways in the MCU. Nope. Or Cloak and Dagger. Right. Which is a shame, because both of those shows are apparently very good. Or the upcoming New Warriors. Right. Although, you will hear a lot more about the new Disney Plus projects, like probably Winter Soldier and Falcon. Right. And WandaVision. And Loki. Oh, God, yes, Loki. Because I think... With those, I'm guessing Kevin Feige has been given a little more of a so the, say. So those are being produced by uh, Marvel Studios and not Marvel Television. Okay, so they are in continuity, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And the other ones are kind of like an imprint, almost. Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, I, I've, I am very far behind on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I read an interview with one of the cast members recently where they basically said that as of Endgame, like... They have more or less diverged. So they don't they don't reference Endgame on the show. Uh, I don't believe well because Endgame jumped forward five years. Oh yeah, and Agents of Shield is not. 
Oh, oh, that which is makes which is confusing. Sense. Which is confusing because apparently they referenced the snap in the previous season. Yes, but they're not going to bring it up again. Not great for them. Okay, although we did get that little bit of Marvel TV Easter egg. Oh yeah, with the 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 flashback. Yes, with uh, spoilers if you've not seen Endgame or. Though I think this is coming out, what, a month after? Right, right. The game has come out, so if you've not seen it... And this is not uh, plot-related at all, but we, we no. do get a brief appearance by uh, by Howard Stark's uh, butler, Jarvis. Right, played by the guy who plays him on Agent Carter. Yes. So at least the Agent Carter series is in canon. Right. Which, which it's, it's great, because we finally got to see John Slattery's version of Howard Stark with Jarvis. Yes, because that was not the version of Howard Stark that was on the show. No, no, we had um, Dominic Cooper, who I love as Howard Stark. I, I like both. I think they both. I like, yeah, I do too. They are both appropriate for very different eras of that character. Anyway, um, so yeah, we're getting a uh, Ghost Rider series on Hulu, as well as a Damien Hellstrom series. Yeah. On, so they might uh, they might Hulu. just be doing the kind of thing I was talking about, albeit right. not with the characters I was suggesting. No, and I'm wondering. If it is connected to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that fun stuff, um, how long are we? is it going to be before we start seeing people like Blade and Ghost Rider appearing in the Marvel movies? Right. Well, because um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, the season that had Ghost Rider, dealt with the Darkhold. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But I'm wondering if like they're letting Marvel TV have Robbie Reyes and then they're saving like Johnny Blaze and Danny Ketch for the movies. See, I would, if they're going to do a movie, the way to do it would be the Spirits of Vengeance, where you have both of them. Interesting. So who would we cast as old um, Johnny Blaze? Like, he was Ghost Rider in the 70s, or at least, like, 80s. Um, hmm. You mean you you wouldn't bring back Nick Cage? No, I wouldn't. (laughs) Um, He's currently in hiding with the Declaration of Independence. Fair enough. Or... Also from the IRS. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. From what I meant by that is, we love you, Mr. Cage. Really, please feel free to come on the show. <laughs> that, would, that would be the greatest episode ever. Um, I, I've seen some people suggest Scott Con. Okay. Um, what would I know him from? Uh, he is one of the twins in Ocean's Eleven, the one that's not an Affleck. Okay. Like the the Mormons. Uh. I can't remember. Like the two the two characters that are bickering all the time. He's James Con's no. son. Okay. Uh, he's also on the reboot of Hawaii Five O. Okay. But yeah, some Marvel horror series now. So yeah. Um, and I I doubt they would ever do straight up Marvel Dracula just because that's not a character that they can ever can totally own. You know, because it's public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I could see them bring Blade back into play. I wouldn't mind seeing them bring in, like, Rachel Van Helsing and Jonathan Harker, and not Jonathan Harker, Quincy Harker, mm-hmm. and Frank Drake. I think that would be interesting. It would be. Um, and there are some other characters we're going to get to soon that have been adapted before that could maybe be done better. Ooh. <laughs> How would you feel about Marvel Dracula played by Keanu Reeves? I could kind of see that. Yeah, me too. Especially like um like his current look with the long hair and the 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 facial hair, like that's very much 
the early 2000s version of Marvel Dracula. We do get a reference to Dracula Lives, number two, on page 26. So right. that Marvel film story from last episode is definitely in continuity. Yep, yep. Which is interesting. Which I so. guess means that for now, unless otherwise explicitly stated, we should assume that the stories featuring Dracula in Dracula Lives are canon. Yes, including, I guess, the trip to America and both of them. Right, both and the, and the Wolfman. and the very upsetting origin. Yes, the very rapey origin, and still gorgeous Neil Adams artwork. Yeah. Speaking of artwork, uh, Gene Colan is definitely not phoning it in this issue. Nope, nope. We've got a lot of real, and it's it's a very. We haven't really talked a lot about the plot of the story because it's basically one fight scene after another. Yes. But visually, those fight scenes are done really well. Yes. I feel like, now, there is a part on page 27 where Gene Colan does a transformation from Dracula to bat form, and it's kind mm. of reminiscent of the Mike Plug, Jack Russell the Werewolf transformations we see. I noticed that, yeah. Just not as good. Right, it, it's, it's the, it, partly because the, the middle parts of the transformation, and even the bat at the end, just don't have any detail to them. No. It's a really sort of sketchy depiction of that transformation. I'm wondering if this was a rushed issue. It's possible. Or at least, like, the last few pages might have been rushed. Yeah. Because I noticed that... You notice there's do... also a lot less in terms of, like, detailed backgrounds on those last couple pages? Huh. You're not wrong there. Like, you start getting just colors in the background? Yeah. That And that's something, that's something I usually associate with, uh, with rushed john byrne pages oh burn we'll get to you eventually I right think. Uh, okay that makes sense um but the 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 fight scenes like i said are very well executed they do a good job of making us see blade as a cool and impressive character mm-hmm. um without undermining dracula's sort of monstrous abilities yeah, this is mostly a Blade issue, but it's not bad for a character's first appearance. Right. Usually we would kind of see them appearing in like a supporting role, and then maybe a few issues later we get a full issue just with, from their viewpoint. But here, we're, we're pretty much launched to him being a star of a story from the beginning. Or you get that thing that Marvel loves to do, where the character shows up, and then the whole middle part of the issue is a flashback to their origin. Oh, yeah. We didn't get that either, which I kind of appreciate. Like, Blade is still sort of a man of mystery here. Yes. We don't we... know what his grudge is with vampires or Dracula in particular. We just know he hates them. Right, and we don't get anything about, like, half vampirism or, um, I think what the original concept was, a human immune to vampirism. Right, so he, I mean, he was originally, like, his mother was bitten while pregnant. And so, okay. and so, yeah, he basically was born with an immunity. And it's not until later with the movies that they, they added to that. Yeah. I, we don't get any of that here. He's just a badass dude um, killing vampires. And Actually, I take I, that back. I think, I think the Spider-Man cartoon might have done a little bit to add to his powers before the movies did. Oh, interesting. So we need to talk about the Spider-Man cartoon at some point probably should those those blade issues are really good and of or course, blade episodes talk, 
And we should probably talk about the Morbius episodes as well. Ah, he craves plasma. Plasma. My, I need, desire, plasma. With my fake Arnold Schwarzenegger accent, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, great first outing for Blade, I think. Yeah, uh, not a conventional first issue, but but a good one um, that leaves you wanting more. Yes, the, the cliffhanger of the ship exploding is a good one. Yeah. And I'm wondering, speaking of cliffs, I'm wondering what's going to happen with Cliff Graves. I was going to ask, do you think he survived? Probably. But I'm wondering if he this means he's going to exit the book for a while. Because, mm. let's be honest, we all hate Cliff. We do. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I uh, roll my eyes a little bit whenever he shows up. Because he's that douchey friend trying to steal your girl who becomes a slave to vampires. As, as you know, we all know that guy. Right. And he's not even a competent servant. No. Like, it, it's amazing that Dracula kept him around this long. For instance, how hard is it for him to restrain a uh, this woman? Right. She's. It's not implied that she's a vampire yet, so she doesn't have vampiric strength. But she she, she kind of clock, she clocks him with a with a bedside lamp, and then goes interrupts the fight. Which that scene makes no sense. How does her coming to Dracula and saying "My love, my love" alter the fight at all? Right. Unless it's just that sort of moment of distraction breaks his hypnosis on the others maybe <sighs> although i will say i did sort of enjoy the the humor of uh of cliff overthinking what he should do where the master's in trouble and i'm sworn to protect the master but the master ordered me to stay here but if i stay here i won't be able to help the master yep and then he gets clocked with a lamp yep because that's what happens Whack. when you overthink things exactly anyway i think we've covered tomb of dracula Number 10. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back to this book sometime soon um, with, as advertised at the bottom of the last page, Voodoo Over London. Right. Might be an episode or two before we come back to Tomb of Dracula. But we Absolutely. Are, yeah. We are going, we're definitely looking forward to it. Anyway, we'll be right back with Monster Frankenstein number four after this message. Frankenberry cereal is coming your way. How about a monster for breakfast today? I want a hanky Frankie. Thanks. And how about some wonderful Frankenberry cereal with oodles? And oodles. A strawberry flavored marshmallows. And Frankenberry is part of this good, nutritious breakfast. Here comes Dal Jogula. Wish you could stay. How about a monster for breakfast today? And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson, and our next issue today is Monster of Frankenstein number four, Death of the Monster. Cover date is July 1973, written by Mary Shelley and Gary Friedrich. Pencils are by Mike Plug. The inker is John Proporton. Colorist is Glennis Ween. Letterer is Artie Simic. And the editor is Roy Thomas. Dawn breaks as the monster regains consciousness in the shipwreck that collapsed around him at the end of the last issue. He digs out the injured Walton and the cabin boy. Initially, he refuses to search for Canute, whom he calls an enemy, but eventually he recovers the guide's dead body. As he attempts to build a raft out of the wreckage, the monster reflects on the decisions he has made over the years. The murder of Frankenstein's wife, his attempt to kill Frankenstein himself, and finally, 
his wanderings after being unable to end his own existence. After he was told of Frankenstein's death, he was eventually drawn to some cooking meat in a small village. As he ate, the monster was attacked by grotesque creatures. Eventually, the monster is able to communicate with their leader, and he learns that they are a tribe of outcasts. The monster finds kinship with them, as they too are feared and hunted by others because of their appearance. Just as the monster finds happiness, however, it is interrupted by raiders from another village. Everyone the monster cares about is killed, and he is left alone to bury the dead. Alone again, fate once again acts against the monster, and the ice beneath him collapses. He sinks into the freezing waters, where he would remain until he is found, back in issue number one. The monster returns to the makeshift camp to find that the cabin boy has also died. The monster tries to take Walton to the raft he has built, but he too is on the verge of death. But with his last breath, he tells the monster that a descendant of Frankenstein still lives in the family birthplace of Ingolstadt. Alone again, the monster sets sail to look for answers. Yeah. This was an issue. It it happened. It, it um no, nothing important happened in it, but <laughs> it no, definitely well, I mean, happened. We so we get this sense of the monster trying to find closure in the past and failing. Like ba- every time he thinks he has found some place where he can stay, everything falls apart around him. Yes. But we saw this already with the people in the cabin. Right. This is just a version of it that was not based on Shelley. Exactly. Also, what is the ethnicity of this tribe? Um, question mark. And then the tribe that attacked them are stereotypical. A- yeah. Are they Inuit or are they Asian? Um, I mean, it could be either. Actually, yeah, they look... That's... It could be either. Like... It's ambiguous. It is amb- everything race, is ambiguous. Race is ambiguous. This whole story is ambiguous. It almost seems like a uh, Conan the Barbarian story rather um, than a Frank Which they hype at the bottom of page 14. Oh, yeah, they do. There, there's a blurb about... Uh, all, all at the bottom of the pages of the original issue, there are blurbs about Conan. Yep. Um, and Angar. And Angar and some guy named Daredevil. Uh, I've never heard of that one. No... And something called a submariner. Um, he might have been helpful when Frankenstein fell into that water. Yeah, and some dude named Iron Man. Mm. Mm. I think it's I, comma Ron Man. Oh, is that like yeah. Ron Weasley? Probably. Oh, cool. So, I guess what we're getting at is not a whole lot of of interest happens in terms no, of developing. Like so. The monster is sad and lonely because every time he finds kinship, it is taken from him. But we knew that already. Yeah, I, the the most interesting and relevant parts of this article, oh, sorry, this issue to happen are the stuff on the ice with yeah the the bookends. Yeah, with uh, the dude dying, the cabin boy dying, and finding out that the Frankenstein line has survived. Yeah, what well, Walton tells him that. You know, the Frankenstein line has survived. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of relationship the monster and the Frankenstein descendant have. I'm right. assuming it's not the guy from Silver Surfer. I, I don't think so. I think it's a different Frankenstein descendant. Right, right. Because if it's the guy from Silver Surfer, Lord help us. <laughs> 
twirling of mustaches. <laughs> although, although then maybe we would actually get a cosmic Frankenstein's monster instead of just a Silver Surfer clone. Yes, but I mean the art is nice. Um, the the especially the close ups of the the monster and Walton near the end. Like I think those are very well done. Um, the last panel is gorgeous. With, yeah, the, with the, the monster, monster setting sail. The monster saying, it's, it's a great panel. It's, it's easily my favorite panel of the issue. Yeah, and the, the graves up at the top corner. Yes, which is really all you need to know from this issue. Yeah, like, so basically, all of the characters you've gotten to know up to this point are dead. Yep, and the monster, monster. And the monster is alone. Yep, again. So, yeah, the Plugart is good. I wonder how much of this series is going to be... The monster making friends, the friends dying or going away, and the monster hitchhiking away Lonely Man style. I was about to say, as as you read that last page, you can almost hear the piano music start. Because it does have that feel of the 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 seventies uh, Incredible Hulk. Yes. Except with no banner. Stupid banner. I I did not like this issue. It's not great. Like I say, I I think the art is good. Um, questionable racial ambiguities aside. Yeah. But but in terms of just the 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 art as art, I think it works. Um, but the story is non-existent. Yeah. The only thing that interested me was in the issue was the implications of the ending. Yeah. That yeah. we are getting another Frankenstein. Other than that, it feels like filler. Filling filler. If if I didn't know better and know this was a new series, I would have thought they pulled this from a closet somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder if this is... Because this is really the first issue where they've not had Shelley to draw on for at least some of the story. And so, so I just I wonder if they just hadn't figured out where to go next yet. That is a possibility. Like, we need to get out of the Arctic. Okay. Well, we can't just do a whole issue of him getting out of the Arctic. I'm like, well, why not? Right. He kind of could. But we need conflict and fights. Okay, flashback to cavemen-ish things. Right. Let's move on to a much more interesting issue. Indeed. We'll be right back with Werewolf by Night number 7 right after this message. Carnival Magic. The excitement. The thrill. The adventure of the carnival. Barha, be careful! You want the chimp? You're looking at the guy who can get him. The most exciting non-stop fun-filled carnival that's ever come to town. Carnival magic. It'll knock you out. See Alexander the Great, the talking chimpanzee. Drive everyone crazy in Carnival Magic. What am I doing talking to a monkey? Alex is on the run, turning the carnival upside down in carnival magic. A madcap monkey romp. Carnival magic. The most amazing thing you'll ever see. A talking chimpanzee. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. We're finishing out the episode this week with Werewolf by Night number seven, Ritual of Blood. 
Cover date, like all our issues, is, is from July 1973. Writer is Lynn Ween. Penciler is Mike Plug. Inker is Jim Mooney. Colorist is Glennis Ween. Letterer is Charlotte Jeter. Editor is Roy Thomas. We pick up from last issue, with Jack Russell, the werewolf by night, being lured into the lion's cage in a circus where he is being held prisoner. The werewolf almost loses to the jungle cats before assistance arrives in the form of the gentle strongman Elmo, and the fight is finally ended by the mystical intervention of the sinister Riva. Jack is left alone in the lion cage until morning, where now human and entranced, he is led back to his cage by Elmo. Along the way, Elmo tells Jack Riva's history, how he was born with telepathic abilities, sought guidance from the Himalayan mystics, ended up stealing the bloodstone from them, and began gathering unusual persons around him, hoping to find one whose supernatural blood may allow him to unlock the bloodstone's secrets. Liza and Buck Cohen arrive at the circus, hoping to find Jack, but are instead hypnotized by Riva and join the show as the Snake Woman and Chicken Man, respectively. That night, after the show, Riva straps the werewolf to a table for the ceremony, but realizing that Riva intends to kill Jack, Elmo intercedes. The stroke of midnight having passed, Midge shoots the strongman for ruining everything, and in return, the dying strongman crushes the little person to death. A fire starts, and the werewolf breaks free, and Riva slips away in the confusion. The werewolf tracks the swami, who tries to escape by taking Liza hostage. Liza, however, breaks his control, escaping. As the werewolf approaches Riva, the telepath senses in a bestial mind his gory fate, and before the lycanthrope can reach him, the swami dies of terror. So, this was a really good issue, I thought. It wrapped up the story well, I think. Right. I mean, it's still kind of, do-do-do, we have a 70 tropes, 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 right. werewolf tropes. I mean, we are one talking chimpanzee away from carnival magic here. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a deep cut. Well, I know what Chad's going in this one. <laughs> carnival magic. Got it. Uh, but no, but, I mean, in spite of the very sort of obvious uh, approach to the the setting and the characters it's handled relatively well like i i have no objections to the story yeah although they kind of set up reva as like an evil charles xavier mm-hmm. which you know born with telepathic abilities gathering unusual people around him but instead of you know for the betterment of mankind it's for the betterment of himself which okay no it's exactly like charles xavier <laughs> right yeah uh, if nothing else i love this issue for giving me buck cohen in a chicken man costume why did i do my man buck like that <laughs> that is so wrong but so right at the same time i mean i'm into it yeah it's it's interesting it's all interesting uh liza looks good in a snake costume sure um like the the Action is relatively well handled. Um, the the fight with the lions is is cool. Yeah, I really like Midge's face on page two. The the hard light against it as he's watching that Jack might actually beat his beloved big cats in combat. Yeah, and Riva's entrance on page five is moody as fuck. Yeah, like that that is that's like an old fashioned Boris Karloff entrance right there. It is. You're just like. The, 
action is happening, and all of a sudden the curtain whips open, and Reva's there, and it's like, the fuck you guys doing? Yep. Um, and everything just stops. Right. Which is perfect. Um, it's a little bit of a convenience, I guess, that um, Lissa seeing Jack as the werewolf snaps her out of the trance. Mm-hmm. But that that's very similar to the convenience of the distraction in the Dracula issue. Yes. And it could be argued in this case that it's because of the connection of the Darkhold's curse. Right, right. Something about seeing her bestial brother awakens something of the bestial side of herself. Right. Yeah, no, this one, it is easier to make the necessary leaps for it to make sense. Yes. And I, I love how Liza uh, frees herself. It's like, okay, pal, hands off the merchandise and just, like, claws his eye. Right. Liza is not putting up with this shit. It's good. Um, and we are left to assume that uh, that Lissa is able to rescue Buck and, and get the chicken man out of the burning carnival. Yes. So he does not end up Kentucky Fried. <laughs> Because we never see him again after we see him in the chicken outfit. It's just, I've got to get Buck out of here. Exactly. Which, you know, you do. Yes. Uh, but I'm kind of amused that the bloodstone that we see here is shaped like a, a bean. Yep. It's shaped like it's, a kidney bean. Especially because the werewolf considers it, realizes it is not food, and then leaves it. Mmm, giant jelly bean. Not giant jelly bean. Forget this. Yep. So, very much not the bloodstone that Ulysses' bloodstone has. So far as we know, we could be shocked down the road be like, the ashes of a carnival tent. Oh, well, damn. This is true. Yes, because we've been shocked before on this show. Absolutely. Not a, not as much of the, like, cool creature effects as we're used to in this book. Um, no. There's only the one transformation, I think, and it's very much sort of the standard of what we've come to expect from this comic just sort of the 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 close-ups of faces moving from left to right we do get an interesting blue montage page on 21 with the history of the bloodstone that one is nice the introduction of the wizard king common yeah and i'm i got it all excited i'm like ooh, where does common roo appear is he from conan or something does he appear again and i looked and this is his only appearance. Well, dang. And I'm like, but, but, aw. Um, but, uh, to give you a sense of when this is happening in relation to other Marvel Comics stuff, at the bottom of that page is a brief advertising blurb for the Green Goblin's last stand. Oh, snap. They about to k- kill Gwen Stacy. Nuff said. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good issue. I, I don't... I know that I have a lot to say about it, just because all it does is sort of wrap up the loose threads from the previous issue. Right. We um, don't really get any kind of hint of what's going to happen next issue. No, like that's one thing that I sort of regret about this book is that that they've stopped sort of setting up for the next issue. Like it's very much become unless it is a two part story, there is a very hard ending that doesn't suggest the ongoing narrative. And I think part of that is editorial edict. I think this is around the time that uh, Martin Goodman has made the declaration that issues need to be more done in one. Mm. Because because the way distribution worked at this time, 
you really couldn't have long continuing storylines because there's no guarantee that you know the corner drugstore was going to be able to get the next issue of werewolf by night or whatever in order to have the continuing story and i think there was worry that coming in in the middle of a story or having a story that you may not see the conclusion to would dissuade young readers who remember this is still considered to be a kid's medium sure sure marvel even at this point is because you know they're aiming for late teens possibly college students there there are no specialty stores there's very little subscription market at this point although they do advertise subscription services right so again this is around the time where we're stopping getting these long continuing storylines and we won't get those again until i think the end of the decade yeah where we start to get long continuing storylines again with things like x-men and fantastic four and so on right right and yeah i mean i i I get the sort of business behind it it's just sort of a shame like how many issues has it been since we've heard about the dark hold yeah and again we're getting a a tropey stereotype for villain right which i want to see something different now upcoming in the next month we do have an appearance by jack russell and marvel team up which should be exciting i'm looking forward to seeing him interact with other parts of the marvel universe yes that should be very cool um go ahead go ahead ahead. oh i was just going to say um one of the things that is fairly interesting to me is uh some of the back matter of the issue uh the uh the bullpen and the letters page i don't know if we want to talk about any of that yeah let's just start with the bullpen yeah um so they're they're mostly hyping their magazine output because they've just launched all these new magazines so uh tales of the zombie which you'll be getting to soon um, Dracula Libs, which we've already talked about a little bit. Yeah. Um, Monsters Unleashed, which I don't think we're going to be covering because it's mostly reprints. Yeah, although I did discuss some of the original material on our Twitter feed yes. at Tomb of Ideas, if you want to scroll back and find some of that. Um, also, at this point, uh, they were uh, Marvel was in the process of launching their ultimate fan club, Foom, Friends of Old Marvel. Yes. Um, which uh, the first issue was handled by uh, Jim Steranko. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that really caught my eye in the bullpen um, is uh, that they, they note some of the behind-the-scenes promotions and shakeups that were happening right around the time this issue came out. Yeah. Uh, this so, is kind so of the this beginning is, this, of the editor war. Yeah, so we had already noted earlier that, that uh, uh, with Roy Thomas as, as editor-in-chief, Stan Lee had stepped up to president and publisher, um, and that sort of left some other vacancies in the company that needed to be filled. Um, so uh, as of uh, this bullpen, Jazzy Johnny Ramita uh, is promoted to art director, um, which had not officially been filled for a while, from what I understand. Um, also, uh, Marie Severin uh, be- uh, began overseeing the coloring on all of their comics, and Marvelous Marv Wolfman stepped in as uh, assistant editor. Uh, working with Roy, um, but but you mentioned uh, that this was a period of editor wars. Uh, what exactly did that mean for Marvel Comics at the time? Well, this is the period of time where Stan has become publisher, I think, and Roy Thomas becomes editor in chief. But we kind of and Stan very much didn't participate in the office politics, so. 
I think you were telling me about Frank Giacoya at this point was calling himself at artistic director. Right. Yeah. He had, uh, Stan had agreed to let uh, Giacoya uh, do cover layouts. Um, but, but Giacoya sort of took that assignment and ran with it and started calling himself art director. Um, and s- uh, by some accounts uh, took it a little personally when uh, Romita was officially named art director. Yeah. Uh, so, John Romita, of course, the artist on Spider-Man at this time. Which means he had worked very closely with Stan for a while. Yes. He was the hand-picked replacement for Steve Ditko. And so it, it makes total sense that that's someone that Stan Lee would be comfortable handing over a bigger job to. Hold up, And I'm looking to see when Jack Kirby left Marvel the first time. Hmm. I'm thinking it would have been, if not around this time, then very close. I think it is fairly close this time. So you kind of have... You have Jack Kirby leaving, and you have Marvel scrambling to find a new artistic uh, North Star, and they turn to their next superstar artist, who is John Romita. Right. Who was the artist on their most popular title at this time, Spider-Man. Because Marvel has always been a company that that very much tried to stick to a house style, and that house style tended to be dictated by whoever was the top guy at the time. Right. I think with Jack Kirby and Stanley on Fantastic Four, that was their top book. With Jack Kirby leaving Fantastic Four, I do think sales started to slip on Fantastic Four, so Mm -hmm. Spider-Man became their top book. If it hadn't already kind of become its top book just because of the popularity of the character. Right. Um, but anyway, I, I just found that fascinating that we get this very small glimpse into the behind-the-scenes workings of Marvel um, in what was otherwise just an advertisement for their fan club. Yes. And then we have the letters page. Oh boy, do we. So, um, if you are a uh, regular listener, you will know that James and I had some very strong feelings about the issue in which Jack Russell had to do battle with the murderous Joshua Kane. Yep. It was bad, y'all. It was real bad. It was real bad, boy. Bo. Bo. Bo, boy. <laughs> we're still not quite sure what the pronunciation was supposed to be there. No. It really could go either way. But, um, James, would you say that this first uh, letter writer agreed with our assessment of the issue? No. He thinks the characterization of Joshua Kane was excellent. If a bit superficial... And I would argue, no, it is all superficial. Ricky, and his letters from Ricky Corey of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Apparently, the whole issue was excellent. Yes. Dear Stan, Roy, Jerry, Mike, the factors that contribute to or distract from the excellence of a comic book are almost too numerous to list. Everything from the writer's initial plot conception straight through to the actual printing of the mag make a difference. But sometimes all these factors come together in exactly the right way, and the result is a story to be remembered. That's how I felt about Werewolf by Night number four. It was excellent. First of all, the plot was a simple one. Well, that's for damn sure. The primal struggle, the hunt, man versus beast, with a simple but frightening twist that, in this case, the beast is also a man. Jerry's characterization of Joshua Kane was excellent too, if a little superficial. We only saw one side of the man, but thinking about it, when a guy is that obsessed, maybe one side is all we need to see. 
Mike's art, as always, was beautiful to behold. It had action and mood, and Frank Boyle's inking, while not the greatest, certainly didn't distract at all from the effect. All in all, a good showing, and I hope to see more issues like it. Stories that break away from their pattern to create bold, new designs of their own. Ricky Corey, Boston, Massachusetts. And all I have to say about that, Ricky, is... What the hell book were you reading? Because I didn't see anything that broke away from any patterns. No, it was very much cliche. Except that it broke away from what had been to that point a pattern of good storytelling. Exactly. It's stuff I was interested in reading. That is definitely the low point of Werewolf by Night so far is the Joshua Kane issue. Yeah, and thankfully... The, the carnival story, while still a bit uh, trope-heavy, at least took us in a more interesting direction than the, than that issue. Right. Mainly because we got more Buck Cohen. Right. Well, and and we've got Lynn Ween uh, scripting now, which is helping. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Kane issue was written by Jerry Conway. It was, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, don't get us wrong. We've, we've had some great stories from Jerry Conway, including some of the early issues of... Tomb of Dracula, sure. which are still, I think, some of the strongest issues in the run. Right, but I, I, I just can't help but think that the, those Kane issues of Werewolf were just, they had to be rush jobs. Yeah, I think Ricky here is reading way too much into Joshua Kane. Mm-hmm. Way more than I think even the writer saw of him. They're like, he's so boring, there must be a more interesting side to him. I think you're re- reaching a bit there, Ricky. Uh, the next letter from Johnny Cabanaro of Brooklyn, New York, agrees with Clint Higginbotham, who I think we we highlighted that letter from that issue, talking about how Jack Russell seems a bit too weak facing these human threats. Right. Which I thought this issue did a better job of addressing. Yes. Um, he manages to take on several lions single-handed, yeah, we definitely get more of a physical threat here, and, and more and, of... And giving a villain with mental powers is a nice sort of foil for the physicality of the werewolf. True. And then we have the last letter from Banderson. No first name given, or no last name given. I It's like Cher, I guess, Banderson, where he praises Marvel for setting its Werewolf by Night title in the West Coast, where right. he's located. Which, you know. Although, he he calls them out for misspelling the name of Tugunga Canyon and demands a no prize for doing so. <laughs> I don't think you get to demand no prizes. No, that's not how no prizes work. You're supposed to get a no prize by pointing out a mistake, but then proposing a way around it. Right. I think here he just... He's just correcting. He's just correcting, and I'm not okay with that. Right. Um, I will say, uh, the Johnny uh, Cabanaro from Brooklyn, despite being in agreement with us and with Clint Higginbotham that Jack is sometimes too weak as a werewolf, he also spotlights the superb job they did on Werewolf by Night number four, and that they should do more stories like that. Oh. What is it with people? Maybe they're just posting the letters that are praising them. I also just wonder if we, maybe the most dangerous game just wasn't that familiar a story back then? It wasn't done to death at that point? 
I mean, it was, but maybe, like, the average comic reader, especially younger comic reader, maybe just didn't know it. And I suppose, to its credit, the jerk had not come out yet. Fair. Which, if that didn't kill your interest in the story, nothing will. Right. But, yeah, so, in any case, uh, I thought the letters were an interesting sort of follow-up to some discussions we had on uh, past episodes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but as for this issue overall, again, I it was fine. It was good. I am hopeful that we'll be getting toward some more movement in terms of developing Jack and Lyssa and their connection to the Darkhold. Yes. Um, because the it, they've been sort of hesitant to dive back into that after that one really standout issue that directly engaged with it. Yeah, and where we talk about, you know, the danger of Liza turning into a werewolf and uh, Liza finding out that Jack is a werewolf and apparently hasn't shared that information with Buck Cohen. Right. Although Buck knows. Come on. Buck knows. He's always known. He is always known because Buck Cohen is the goat. Right. Anyway, speaking of greatest, Trey... I think it's that time of the episode where we talk about our best and worst of the episode. Right. Uh, I think my best for this episode is going to have to be the Tomb of Dracula issue. By, by far. I mean, we, we already sort of addressed how well it introduced the character of Blade. But even aside from that, it just was more interesting visually and narratively than anything else we had. Yeah. It was the only issue that on the last page I thought to myself, I can't wait to see what happens next. It's a great introduction. It's a real yeah. standout for the month. And even if we're including, like, say, Dracula Lives number two, which I think also came out this month, it's still the standout. And that's a book that has Neil Adams' artwork and a really good Roy Thomas story in there. Right. So I definitely, I'm excited by Blade. He's an exciting character. I'm excited by Blade. I'm excited to see what happens now that we've sort of shaken up the status quo of the book. Yeah. Um, and and none of the other books did anything quite like that. Now, I will say the Frankenstein issue, the most interesting thing about it was the suggestion of what might happen next. Yes. The suggestion of a change. But the problem quo. is that you could make that suggestion without anything else that happened in that book. True. But definitely Tomb of Dracula number 10 is a standout issue. I think the worst of the episode is going to be that monster of Frankenstein number four. Yeah. Well, again, the issue itself didn't do anything. Like, the, the best part about it was the to be continued. Yes. Where the werewolf by night, while not being anything, oh my God, exceptional, still had some really great moody moments from Mike Plug. I'm specifically thinking that part where Riva comes in and stops the fight, which is a moody and evocative set of panels. Yeah. And, and also, it's it does what, even though it doesn't set up for the next story, it does what the second part of a two-part story should do. It ties up the loose ends in a satisfying way. And it gives us Buck Cohen and the chickens. That it does. That it does. Um, so I think that covers our our comics discussion for uh for this episode right and we've already kind of talked already about the big news the hulu ghost rider and damien hellstrom series so right. guys i think that does it for another episode of tomb of ideas thank you so much for coming back to listen to us 
um, after last episode. Please make sure that you're subscribing on the podcast app of your choice. Um, like us, rate us, review us, send us feedback, even if we especially love reviews on the podcasting apps because those help with algorithms and numbers and things that I don't really understand. But even if you don't do that, we have an email address, tombofideas at gmail.com, I believe. Yep. We're on Twitter, at Tomb of Ideas. Let us hear from you. Let us know what you think. If it's something that you want us to read on the air, then reason, we'll be happy to do so. And be sure to check out the other Cinepunks podcasts. Our sister show, The Flight Stuff, is in the midst of covering John Byrne's issues of Alpha Flight and is a lot of fun. We've also got a lot of other great shows covering a wide range of movies and pop culture topics. So uh, be sure to check those out as well. All really great shows that you should check out. And of course, next episode, we're going to have another magazine with Tales of the Zombie number one and a comic with Supernatural Thrillers number five, which features the debut of a new character, The Living Mummy. That should be. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Simon Garth. Simon Garth will be in a Tales of the Zombie issue, too. Right. Even though right. we have kind of seen him briefly already. Yeah. No, it's exciting, though. These are. We're, we're finally filling out. The, the familiar faces of uh, the Marvel horror sort of uh, universe. Right, right. And it's, it's definitely something to look forward to. But again, like I said, guys, that does it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. Until next time, Tomb Believers, goodbye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tumblers Excelsior. <laughs>